Brooklyn.
Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is co-host uh, Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome, welcome. Hello, welcome everyone. Good morning. Um, and our guest today is Siang Wong. Uh, Siang Wong is primarily an oil painter, a socially engaged art practice, invites reflections and conversations and contradictions and unseen present in the everyday. Um, so welcome, Siang. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Good, good. So um, why don't we start off about your art practice? Tell us a little bit about when you started this art practice and how it's, uh, you know, kind of inviting us into that space of the socially engaged. Uh, I started painting, uh, oil painting, about uh, 2015. I've always been uh, into the arts, uh, you know, s- since I was young. Um, but I, I would say that uh, I started in 2015 when I was uh, jogging uh, in my neighborhood of the Lower East Side and I saw uh, people picking cans and it's usually the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just struck me so much. And, you know, when you're jogging, you get a chance to just meditate and think about what you see. Um, and those repeated images uh, got me to really want to paint and uh, uh, reflect on, um, you know, why in my world, in our world, there are people who need to pick up cans for a living. Yeah. So this might give you an insight or the paintings are giving you an insight to the other realms of the other worlds that people, people, our neighbors live in. And, and, um, and did you take pictures or how did you, did you take photographs and then you would go back and, and tell us a little bit about how. Yeah. Yeah. Are. And, and it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm a little shy about it because, you know, you know, I, I feel like I'm invading people. Mm. Uh, and obviously I can't just sit on the street and, and start painting, yeah. you know, it's just kind of hard. So when the images that, that struck me, I would uh, try to, you know, take a picture and and so initially many of my uh pictures were from behind the mm. person picking up the cans um but over the years i have actually gotten to know a few people and i was able to take pictures with them and you know in front of them so uh that has uh, uh you know changed a, a little bit of, uh, on the images that i do actually paint um so that that's one area of uh you know, paintings I focused on, which uh, I think is a, a reflection on society and the society we live in. Uh, you know, we, 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 I think that many of us see them, but yet they are still invisible mm. because they're just part of the landscape. Um, you know, as we go from home to work or school and, and in our everyday, we might even hear part of the sound, but yet we don't really hear them. Um I think now there are more and more of them on the streets in New York City and probably around the world in various cities, major cities. Um, but still, I don't think that uh, collectively we are able to see them and think about why they are uh, there and why there are growing numbers of them. And I, I my goal is to, uh, because they struck me, their images struck me, and, and I, I, I really would... Uh, like to share those images in a space where people can stop and think. Yeah. So why don't we backtrack a little bit to your own life journey and tell us a little bit about like where you're born and where you grew up and, and how you, you um, a little bit of your life journey to here where you are now. Um, yeah. I, um, I grew up poor. I uh, was born in China. 
uh, I, immig- I I moved from China to uh, Macau, which is uh, which was the Portuguese colonies for many years uh, until China took it back, I believe, in 1999. Mm. Um, and I was living in Macau for uh, from from my kindergarten years to I think fourth grade, so, and then I immigrated to the United States when I was eleven years old. Mm. While I was in Macau, um, my mother, uh, I, you know, I have a brother and a sister, and and my mother was able to move uh, us to Macau because she values education, um, and she worked in a factory uh, producing wigs. Uh, and um, and and obviously, you know, all that gets exported, uh, and we were dependent purely on that salary, and we lived in a small room, uh, shared an apartment with a number of workers, and I, I think that's pretty typical of um, mm. life in Macau at that time. You know, everybody working in factories that produce goods to be exported to the rest of the world. Um, and But then, you know, we live poor, we barely have eggs, we have rice and soy sauce for food and spam was our source of meat, but we went to private school. <laughs> you know, yeah. my mother would uh, put like pretty much her entire salary in our education in a private school, uh, in a Catholic school actually. Um, and we would have like one uniform and every weekend it get, gets washed, you know, because mm-hmm. that's all we had. Mm-hmm. Um we finally were able to immigrate to the United States and my mother saw more opportunities for us. And life was just really hard for her, you know, having three kids and putting us through Catholic school. And when we got to the U.S., um, she worked in a garment factory and she described her her uh, work as walking the length of the Brooklyn Bridge 20 to 40 times a day. Um, and she was exhausted and now in her 70s, she's still paying the price physically. Um yeah, so you know, I, I that's that's sort of my background. I, I think I I know what it means to be poor. I've lived through it. Um I saw my parents struggling. We my parents were united in the US because we were able to immigrate and my father wasn't able to get to Macau. Um so having you know, being able to to unite with my father uh was very important. You you know, as a child growing up feeling, you know, now that my family's together um, just meant so much. And we were able to, uh, you know, live and grow together. And, you know, at the same time, I I saw how hard he worked too. He worked in the fish market, standing all day long. There was no chairs, you know. It was like, why? I could never understand that. Um, uh, You know, so seeing how poor my you know, how hot my parents worked, um, even though I love to draw and I, you know, art just always meant so much because, you know, we didn't have toys. So my sister and I would um, take like papers and cardboards and we'll draw all our characters and we'll fold cardboards into little furniture pieces and we'll, that's what we play with. And that's, I think, was the beginning of our serious art making days because we were so into it. You know, we have... I think we create our, uh, uh, you know, soap opera, you know, stories mm. every day, uh, and it's exciting. Um, so I, I, you know, I got into LaGuardia High School of Music and Performing Arts, um, but I only stayed there for one year, even though I think that was my best high school year. You know, just drawing paintings and doing sculptures, uh, but I just didn't want to be poor. 
I I just mm. I just don't think that uh, I could live that way anymore. Um, so I went to Stuyvesant. I I took the test and I was able to get in. Um, and I went. You know, I thought you know I'll be a doctor. You know, mm. um, but that didn't sort of pan out. Unfortunately, <laughs> I yeah. I couldn't do blood. You yeah. know, I just uh, I realized just not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I uh, I'll just you know. So yeah. I, I was, uh, while I was in Stuyvesant, I was working after school every day because I was afraid I need money for college. Yeah. You know, my parents won't be able to send me to college. Um, I, I got to do my part. I have to work. And working minimum wage just won't get you to college. Um, yeah. But I just ha- have to do something. So, yeah. So what, you seem like you're very driven by values, by moral obligations, by duty, by uh, a desire to push yourself. So talk a little bit about kind of like what, what are the, a little bit of the underpinning values and moral compass that you had that kind of, that driving engine that helped push you forward towards this work ethic and, and this kind of thing that, that drove you to a little bit more about that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think I, um, well, I went to Catholic school. Mm. I, I, I was taught, um, uh, you know, you know, just doing good. Mm. Right. Being good. And I think uh, as a child, that helps, you know, particularly when you grow up poor and you see so much um, harshness in this world. Um, But then, you know, I I, I think that as I got older, as I begin to ask myself, you know, particularly in the U.S., you know, Mm. you see people who are on the street and and everybody would just walk way by. Mm. Right. Um, In Macau, I didn't see that. I, I, there were a lot of poor people, but people were working, mm. earning very low wages, but people were working. I didn't see people who were drunk, mm. um, you know, really dirty streets, uh, tired people. But in the U.S., I see people on the streets and people just walk right by as yeah. if uh, it didn't, it just didn't face them. Yeah, so desensitized. By yeah. The, and yeah. so I ask myself questions all the time. Mm. Uh, and I think the asking the why um, got me to thinking about, uh, you know, just have a lot of questions. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think going to Catholic school helped and, and growing up in an environment where I see so many people working hard mm. but still just surviving uh, shaped my worldview. Um, and then coming to the U.S. and being shocked with, you know, people really yeah. are just on the streets and homeless yeah. and drunk and look like they're dead, you know, and nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> yeah, it's like the sense of community and also the, the need for um, camaraderie with our society, the need for finding the truth and pushing our neighbors to, you know, see the, see this invisible reality seems to have also been the driving force and, and being able to um, connect with social justice, you know, being able to, you know, that we should uh, be, and what does that term social justice mean to you? Or what is that? How can you unpack that a little bit? Like, what is? What do you think? And, and you know, we'll get into your career in one second. But before we get to the, you know, how you became a lawyer and how law is part of the uh, that that um, definition of social justice, perhaps, or how does that? Play I, out? Yeah. You know, I, I have a very uh, simple way of understanding the world, and I don't think it should be that complicated. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think from a child's eyes, probably the best way, and I, I, I think that social justice just means to be fair. Yeah. Right. Uh, everybody treating each other fairly. Mm. Um, not one person should have a lot yeah. while someone else have nothing. Um, 
I, I think that's what social justice is to me in that very simple term. Uh, just be fair in every way. Yeah, and then you're to, uh, the law. So you got into law. We'll talk a little bit about kind of how you, how, what brought you into law and how that kind of was in one way into your, your ideas about social justice and Yes. How did you get into law? Yeah, um, I was fortunate, but when it was happening to me, it didn't feel like it. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I was tutoring. Uh, I was uh, working after school while I was in Stuyvesant High School, and I was uh, um, working this after-school program, um, teaching kindergarten kids. And I was, you know, in search of what I want to do in my life, you know, as a teenager. And I thought I'd be a teacher because the kids loved me. We sing about everything, you know. When the sun comes up, the weather, the mm. time, when to go use the bathroom, like you name it. We, I just have every song for it. Um, and the kids loved it. They learned. The parents loved me. Um, and my third, my, my summer before college, um, just when I thought, I'm going to be a teacher, I was fired from my job oh. <laughs> for organizing. I, um, there was a lot of changes that summer and including uh, them lowering my wage to back to minimum wage and uh, they took away my assistance. And I, I, you know, at the time I was 18 years old, I was already the head teacher in the class for uh, two years uh, and I had assistance and having a group of 25 kids under the age of five, you really do need help. So there was a sense of urgency with all that change to um, do something. And I, I, signed, I wrote a petition uh, asking for a meeting with management and in it, I threw in, and we want a raise, 75 cents raise. Um, and I just kind of threw it in because I thought, you know, it's, it's all right. You can't just drop everybody's wages down to minimum wage without talking to us. You know, we, we work so hard. Um, and I was fired for that. I was fired for insubordination. Um, but I was not the only one who got fired. I was the first one who got fired. But... I think only one person out of a group of 21 teachers who did not sign the petition. So two other teachers took my petition and went in and wanted to talk about it. Um, management fired them too. And one other teacher, um, they're all already in college. Two of them are already, um, you know, studying to be a teacher. The last one uh, was also, you know, really care about sense of justice. He resigned in protest. Um, and that being fired, you know, really changed my worldview. It was a shock to my system, you know, being um, 18 and young and, and, and you know, and, and really just, you know, you have this, I think when you're young, you have this uh, idea that if people made it, if they're successful, then they have done something right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that summer, uh, I went to the board of directors of this nonprofit and asked to meet. None of them agreed to meet. Uh, and their lawyers, their doctors, the community, you know, people who were very successful, but yet they refused to listen to a group of teachers who have taught for years in that program. Um, and that really was a shock to my system because you cannot appeal to higher authorities for um, uh, what you thought was right. You cannot be hurt. You, 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 they, they're not willing to hear you. So, um, I learned from that summer that respect had to be earned. Uh, it, it, it doesn't come from anyone's success because it doesn't really mean all that much. At the end of the day is do people really care? 
about uh, other people. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I, uh, yeah. I, I, a, a labor organizer. Yeah, no, I just okay. wanted to validate that. And, you know, you were so young. I went through an experience like that in my early 30s where I – was pushing for more for the the people who were working and the people who are doing most of the the work and pushing for healthcare and and um, um, wage issues and I got fired from you know oh. a place where and you know I think that was it was very shocking to me because it was the people who were in power in that situation I really thought we had we were all aligned on the morals and you think oh a school clearly. There must be, you know, the we must all agree that like creating the most successful environment for the teachers and the students is the utmost priority. And um, I think that's a problem when we have people who are the people who are in power are not the people who are having the direct experience is that it allows those people to they're so emotionally distant. I've found that what they are loyal to, what they respect is not necessarily the same thing that the people involved. And it's something that I question about, you know, the hierarchy that we have in the West in our organization, especially for our school systems. Um, I don't have an answer to that, but I just wanted (laughs) to say like that, you know, it it shocked me at the age of like 30, you know, that Mm. I'd even gotten that far in life and was still thinking, Oh, like, people must care, right? Like you must care about the experience that you're giving, you know, the students that you have, like that must be something that you emotionally feel connected to every single day. And it was very shocking to me to find out that there were people who were running a school that had absolutely no emotional connection to the quality of the class. Yeah. I was impressed in your story saying that uh, also that you were able to find authority to go to that wasn't just like, Oh, you know, they, they fired me. Okay. You know, an 18 year old must, you know, many 18 year olds, I think would be like, Oh, okay. You know, that's, that's the way life goes and, and just, you know, kind of take it or something. But you were able to find the, um, NLRB, the National Lawyer Review Board. No, no, no. I think that, um, the good thing about working with other uh, yeah. teachers is that everybody has some sort of connection. Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, I, you know, when I was 18, uh, you know, my mother was telling me, oh, you know, just find another job. You know, yeah. you were doing private tutoring, go back to private tutoring uh, on the weekends or, you know, do that for the summer because there are gangs uh-huh. in Chinatown. You know, you don't know who these people are affiliated with. And I'm like, mom, they're a nonprofit. Huh. Uh, you know, so I... Do some connections. I met somebody, someone named Wing Lam, who's a, a very well-known labor organizer, community activist in Chinatown, and very well-known in the city as well in 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 that arena. Um, and meeting him was really life-changing mm. because he taught me to question authority, to think critically about the world I live in and where people are and why people behave the way they behave. Um, he was the one who actually told me to go to the National Labor Relations Board. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's a federal, agency, federal government agency that enforces workers' rights yeah. to better their working conditions. And that's a very unique um, law that the uh, NLRB enforces. Uh, it's, it's singular in the world because it mm. protects people when they come together as working people to improve their working conditions. And that is uh, uh, the right to engage uh, collectively 
uh, mm-hmm. to to uh, for mutual aid and protection. Those are the legal terms. Yeah. Uh, so I went to the NLRB. I filed the charge, and of course, I was acting concertedly with my coworkers who are also teachers. Uh, we got fired, and that's a yeah. retaliation for that uh, concerted action of trying to improve our work, working conditions. Uh, you know, both wages and also to talk about, uh, you know, the, the classrooms and the students. So that's, you know, concerted activities, and it's protected because it's about our working conditions. The NLB investigated, issued a complaint. It was settled. I wanted an apology. I wanted to go to trial at 18. But I think that the agency, because they're willing to give 100% of back pay, you know, I didn't care for reinstatement because I was already in college. Um, you know, that that uh, they actually did me a favor because I took the back pay and I, for the first time, I actually had money to uh, uh, go for a prep course and I prepped for the LSAT. And I decided to be a lawyer because I learned that if there's one thing I want to protect and defend is the right of people to improve the working conditions, uh, to, 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 uh, go for, to improve their lives. I think that that is such, that is so important and that that should be a right that everybody should have. Um, so I've been, you know, I, I went to law school. I, I interviewed with NLRB, um, and luckily, uh, they hired me, and now I've been there for 20 years as a federal prosecutor. So let's go into a little bit of um, the nonfiction. You're saying you read a lot of nonfiction. What is the uh, any any works that come to mind that kind of delve into these themes or or deal with um, you know the themes of social justice? Or have you been reading anything that, or just in general, you been anything that uh, um, inspires you or works towards your goals? Um, or in the past, yeah. Yeah, in the past, I yeah. I, I uh, read a lot of nonfictions, uh-huh. um, and th- there's one book that I I think really uh, grounded me, and it's it's called The New Chinatown by Peter Kwan. Mm. Um, he passed about two years ago. He uh, taught um, history in Hunter College for many years. Uh, he's also a spokesperson for. Um, uh, Asian American issues uh, and immigrant issues and labor issues. He's just a very, he was a very dynamic uh, person who, who was a professor, but he was always on the ground with the people. He believed in talking to people to understand what he needs to write about. Um, so in the new Chinatown, um, you know, being Chinese, you know, immigrated when I was 11, I, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't understand the, the 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 dynamics in Chinatown and what it means to be Chinese and Asian American until I read that book. I saw the historical background about how Chinese were being treated, how being Chinese and Asian, uh, 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 so you know what uh, what it means to be in the U.S. Uh, being Chinese. So I, I think that it, it grounded me. Uh, it's a book I recommend it to any, you know, uh, Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, uh, and anyone who just want to understand what it means to be uh, uh, a minority growing up. Um, so I, that that book influenced me because it is uh, oh, it taught me that uh, things have a way of repeating itself. There's a pattern 
to life. Um, even though that was a book I read, you know, 20 years ago, um, more than 20 years ago, like, you know, I still see similar events happening. Mm. Um, and I think in, in other books I read, uh, you know, that that book grounded me, but, you know, it got me really interested in nonfiction books. So it seems like you have like a pattern or a forest, but you seem to be very focused as a lawyer. You have to be focused on the trees. And we were talking a little bit about this metaphor of finding the trees in the forest. And, yeah. And, you know, and, and what that means to you about finding individual cases that exemplify or yeah. speak to this larger pattern. If you tell us a little bit about how that metaphor um, speaks to you. Yeah. Well, when I was in uh, law school, I was uh, struggling. You know, mm. I, 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 I feel like, I, you know, I want justice. I want fairness. Um but law study the study of the law is is a case by case you know uh one case at a time winning justice right and that seems to me very slow and like how does it work um and i was questioning whether law school was for me when i was in law school and my labor law professor um maybe he was observing me he came to me and he said you know joanne sometimes you just have to see the trees from the forest and that's what the practice of law requires. You have to examine every tree in order to change the forest. And I think that helped me get through law school because that helped me understand that if I choose to be a lawyer, I need to, to, to go to the minutia of every case and win one case at a time. Um, and I did that, you know, for 20 years now. Um, and, I, you know, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. At the same time, though, I, particularly in recent years, I, I, I feel that what I see, I, I'm not contributing enough. You know, uh, I, I don't feel like there's fairness and justice. I still feel like the, the gap between the rich and poor is only getting bigger. Um, my wages as a government employee hasn't gone up for, uh, you know, 10 years, more than 10 years. Um, you know, and I could just imagine what's happening to other people who I serve, who are workers coming into the office, telling me, you know, they 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 live with their parents. Uh, they're in their fifties, forties, um, and they share a home. They also go to the food pantry, uh, and they work hard. So, I I feel that I need to go back to my paintings and my art. Uh, I needed to do more, and so the force never left my mind, mm. and I feel that. Going into my art is one way to attack the forest while still doing what I love, which is um, being a lawyer and being able to enforce a law that protects workers' rights to better their, their working conditions. Mm. So, um, yeah, so talking a little bit about, it brings into your vision for society and such. So what you want uh, society to be like or which, if an ideal world, a utopian Society, how, how, what are we moving towards? What is the, you know, kind of thing, you know, like uh, your vision for society? Um, I think, again, my vision for society is, is very simple. Um, I just want a fair society. And I think that's probably what everybody wants. Uh, one where, you know, you, you don't see the super rich billionaires, um, multi-billionaires who have multiple mansions, on the hills, flying their jets from place to place, when there are people who are homeless, who are on the streets, going hungry, children going hungry, um, 
children living in fear, living in 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 a home that's you know rat infested or filled with you know just just damp and and you know not a living space. I don't think there should be that kind of gap because that is just purely unfair. Mm. Um, I also would like to see that people are given opportunities to live. Um, you know, people could have a lot. You know, people could be billionaires. People could work hard and be rich. That's not the problem. I think that uh, if there can be, you know, you can be really rich as long as you make sure that people who are like you, who are also human, are not living in poverty. Mm. That would be a, a that's totally fine for me. If everybody's doing good, that's great. Yeah. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, I I don't think that money and wealth can truly give us joy. Mm. I think being able to see that people who are like you are also uh, similarly living, a similar living standard. You know, there's always going to be differences, right? Uh, not everybody cares to live well, while others care and they can work hard, and I think that's right, and we need to protect that too. Um, but I, I think having a, a similar standard of living uh, would create um, more happiness. Mm. You know, not to say the same, but similar. I totally agree, and I think most people probably listening are like, "Yes, absolutely." And so then, my next question with that is, well, I have two questions, which would be. How do we, how do you suppose we do that? Cause I think it's like, that's the big question is, you know, how do we move towards that in a bigger sense as a society? But I think also I, I get stuck in a place where I go, I don't, and I think this is how a lot of people feel about things like climate change and about homelessness, which is what can I actually do? Like, what's the action I could take today or tomorrow that could move forward with creating a healthier or more fair, you know, society that we live in. Cause I think a lot of people just don't know what to do. The problem seems so big, you know, the, the, the financial divide in this country feels so overwhelming to me that I might think about it and I'm like, but I don't know what to do about it. And so I'm wondering if there's any, like on a bigger level, if you could snap your fingers and change things, <laughs> what might you do? But then also for, for people that are somewhere in between, for people who are making a living but aren't millionaires, like, is there any actions you foresee us being able to do that might help us move towards that fairness? Uh, I think two things. Uh, on the bigger level, we do live in democracy. Uh, and I don't think we should forget that because a lot of countries are not democracies. Mm. And people can talk freely. They cannot go and vote. We have a democracy. If people truly take that, uh, as a right, that really a lot of little people come together, have a big voice. That's what democracy is. And I, I would say, go out and vote. Go out and learn about who are running. If you know a friend, if you feel like you can do something great uh, for other people, go run for office. Um, change the machines. You know, there, there are a lot of existing machines out there uh, that, that are just too entrenched. They don't work for the people anymore. We need to go out and change that. And it starts with all of us believing, still believing in democracy uh, and really knowing that we have one. We just need to make it better. 
everything can be improved. The second thing is, I, I think at the end of the day, we need to think about the way we think. The way we think shape the world we live in. And, you know, I, I, I feel that, um, you know, we're driven by this whole uh, idea of capitalism, right? Capitalism is not bad, but it has, the, the language around capitalism has gone to the extreme where people forgot, um, you know, the idea of being human. You, you're not, capitalism is not going to succeed if the, the gap between the rich and the poor continue to exist and widen because there's just not enough consumers, right? And as consumers, we are so not able to perceive our power to change the system as consumers. You know, can I always imagine as I think about how we can change the bigger world, what if one day people collectively decide not to buy from one particular company just one day or one week? We can take that company down as consumers, but we need to act collectively and concertedly. Yeah, we need to hear and understand that our voices uh, together are amplified and, you know, make our voices heard. We need to find that truth, find that power, understand that uh, as our communities are strong, our communities are, are needed to make their voice at that table, to, to take a seat at the table, to command that seat. You know, and that, and that, you know, we think about speaking truth to power and such. We think about speaking truth and we think about, you know, communicating that power to the people who are, you know, in charge or in power or whatever like that or the government. But they're, they're mostly civil servants ultimately. And, you know, the, they had serve our communities and the communities that we're all trying to empower. It feels to me like one of the, or what, in my observations, it's been like, we have gotten so the thing that's risen the most in financially for businesses that are doing much better are convenience businesses. And I really do feel like, like, cause I think that too, I'm just like, Oh, what if everyone just for one week didn't use amazon.com? Yeah. Like what would happen? Just what, you know, but I, I, every time I t- bring that up to someone, they're just like, Oh, but it's so convenient and it's so convenient. And so I think so much of, you know, justice and fairness is, I think, you know, the, 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 the antagonist to that is our obsession with being comfortable and our, our false need for convenience. And I think, especially in New York, I deal with this with my writers all the time and they're like, oh, well, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be safer? Wouldn't it be? And I'm like, but that's not better. You know, you guys are so used to being able to walk out your door and 24 hour day, go to a deli that has like everything you might need in the middle of the night. And I'm like, that's not the norm. And that I feel like for art and justice, like that gets in the way of people more than, or at least from my friends, definitely more than anything else of just this, this feeling of like, Oh, it's America. And we got to a comfortable place and now we never have to be inconvenienced again. And, you know, I just, I don't know if that yeah, adds anything. I think that the, the, I, I think the whole convenience, that whole expediency, um, you know, th- there is benefit to the world that Amazon created. But there has, now I think we're, I, I think many of us are questioning the cost and benefit of that convenience. Mm-hmm. You know, we see mom and pop stores going away. We see a lot of creative 
uh, little stores that are going away because of this whole convenience that we we are now succumbing to. You know, and I'm guilty, uh, you know, as well. You know, as a single mother, um, you know, and working full time and wanting to find time to paint. You know, when and and having to buy shoes for my kids that change the size every three months. You know, having Amazon is great. You know, I just get the same pair of shoes, have a size or size bigger. You know, there is a convenience, but that convenience is actually really expensive. It's it's expensive because it's costing good paying jobs. It's creating lower jobs, many of them, you know, probably in warehouses. But, you know, what about this other creativity that the society is losing that always, you know, I, I think all of us think a little bit about that, you know, at times, you know, and I, I, I'm trying to use Amazon less and I'm trying to figure out a way to creatively figure out how to do that. Um, and I, I think that is important. But going back to what you were saying, you know, I think I think we as people need to stop and continue to ask ourselves this question, make this question louder in our mind, which is what does it mean to live? Um is it you know just just the convenience of of uh not being able to not not needing to go out and shop, not needing to find that time to do it. Um but what is that meaning? You know, what does it mean to live? So I've been asking myself this question, and, and it does require extra effort. So composting, you know, mm. fruits and vegetables is really inconvenient, you know. Um, but I really, really wanted to do it. And finally this year, I'm able to do it as a habit. You know, I, every Monday and Friday, I need to go to this one corner of the street in my neighborhood to drop off my compost, but I'm doing it. You know, and I've created a habit, and if it if I don't make it, I put it in the freezer. I'm going to go the next time, but there's no excuse. I'm co- composting my food. And, and that has brought so much joy to me because um, my garbage pile is getting smaller because I realize there's so much that I put in the garbage can that's actually compostable. Um, and I'm thinking about my two kids and I'm contributing, the, contributing uh, to their world. And and I could just imagine this community growing. You know, that's a, a, a inconvenient collective act that actually make a difference. And now we just need more creative people to come up with ways to uh, beat Amazon. You know, Amazon needs a competitor. Mm. We need to like really think about how much more power we can give to Amazon before Amazon rules the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's such a great point of taking, you know, to say like, get rid of convenience or, you know, like suddenly like only support all small businesses feels really overwhelming and scary. But the idea of taking one thing, one thing that, you know, something that's important to you, like for me, I did it with books because I have a very deep uh, relationship with, with books and reading and writing. And I was like, okay, I'm never going to use Amazon for books again. And instead of it feeling like an inconvenience to go to the bookstore, um, I turned it into this really pleasurable like thing that I get to do where I'm like once a week I get to visit any bookstore I want in the city and I make it a whole like date with my artistic self that I go out and I dress for it and I'll meditate before it. And it becomes this really something that used to feel like an inconvenience now is something that 
has created a really, really wonderful experience and relationship in my life. And I think, you know, starting small with just like, what's one thing that you realize you're being convenient with that you could adjust and turn into how to create a different relationship with that thing so that it doesn't feel like you're losing anything, but it actually feels like you're gaining something as well as helping to move away from this convenient culture that is creating this unfairness and this lack of justice. Um, yes, mm. go forth. Buy yeah. books and bookstores. <laughs> yeah. And also I, I just made me think of the library because like, you know, like, oh, yes. yeah, of course yep. the library chair yep. went to pitch in there because <laughs> like, uh, you know, people go to the library and they're like, complaining over these 25 cent fines or these small fines they're like mm-hmm. I, I it's the principle of the thing meanwhile if they buy that book they, they wouldn't shrug twice to pay shipping handling and mm-hmm. and all this kind of, i mean there's the one thing if you honestly have financial difficulties that's one factor but i find a lot of these people you know they're they're saying they're quibbling over 40 cent fine like can you break a 10 you know they're like you know they're mm-hmm. only bring out these big hundred or big bills and they're like yeah. you know they obviously can't afford to pay the whatever, fine. And they're not supporting these cultural institutions because they feel on the principle thing they got to... I know, do also go to a lot of the public library. Yeah. So some books I, I have to... Un- I, my nonfiction books I need to underline and take notes. Yeah. And so obviously I don't go to the... Yeah. Do not write in public yeah. books that have been lended to you by the wonderful public library. Yeah. But going and supporting those places is another... It creates a wonderful experience. And that is something... The thing I like about going to the New York public libraries is just honestly the people watching. I usually end up just sitting there for at least 10 minutes, just kind of appreciating the eclectic group of people and just wondering what's brought each of these people in here. There's always a, like, I'm not just like, Oh, that person looks like a student. Oh, and that person looks like they just needed to get away. Like some people like set up camp and I see like these whole workstations and I just, it's a great place to foster creativity. Yeah. It seems like what we're talking about also is about, um, how we're creating a vision for ourselves and and what kind of disciplines, what kind of uh, practices we can engage in that will better ourselves and, and have that ripple effect that we understand that the person is political and that our personal uh, choices matter, that our personal choices have an impact. So if we go a little deeper into like, you know, for yourself, Sharon, uh, what personal choices and what, what, your, what your discipline is moving towards, what you want to, what your goals are for your personal self and and we talked a little bit about this. We amplify a little bit more, like what your goals are for the next few years, or how you what you're moving towards. Yeah. Um, I I uh, I really would like to attack the forest. You yeah. Know? <laughs> uh, I have, you know, just just um this need to share at this point, just to have conversations. I feel that I need to reach out to the world, uh, and have people reflect back to me. Uh, about their thoughts, about what I've been thinking about, matters like that I matters that mean so much to me, which is justice and fairness. And I don't think I'm alone. I think that it has to be this basic human need for justice and fairness. Um, and I need at this point for people to reflect back to me on what they think about that. So uh, in the next few years, I want to paint more and I'm painting a lot more. I'm applying for grants, I'm applying for support, and I hope that um, I will succeed in really sharing my voice as uh, somebody who had immigrated from so far, who have a different perspective to share, um, who have grown up with certain experiences that I want to share. Uh, Right now, I am uh, uh, working deeply on uh, uh, a series of paintings on canners, 
uh, people pick up cans for a living. And what I observed is that they're primarily minorities, although I've seen, you know, uh, white men and white women picking up cans as well. But primarily, I see minorities. Uh, and in, since I live on the Lower East Side, I see many uh, Chinese uh, picking up cans. And they're older women. There's one woman I've befriended with. She's 90 years old. She she works right around my neighborhood picking up cans. Uh, there are men too, but they're primarily women. And I want to share those images. I want to hear what people think about that. Um and through my paintings, I hope to start a conversation about social justice. And if we're okay with uh, elderlies picking up cans to survive, then what else are we okay with as a society? Yeah. Right? Where is the bottom? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I just want to visually challenge people to, to stop and take a moment to see what is visible but yet Invisible, because there's just, you know, I think a lot of times our own lives are not that easy, right? We're struggling with issues in our own lives. How do we stop and think about how we can help others? Sometimes it could be scary, it could be challenging. But I think that when we can all stop and think, we might see a lot more commonalities in our struggles and that perhaps we can solve that together Mm. as as people, as, as a human race. So if you wanted to also promote one of your next ex- exhibit, yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about that. What you're building up towards, yeah, yeah, yeah. My next exhibit is in November. Um, uh, I have a solo exhibit at the New York Arts Center uh, at 78 Bowery. They opened up a, a, a basement gallery, which is a very, very good size, and I'm very excited because I'm going to work toward maybe two or three more paintings uh, on the canners and and this project is this this solo exhibit is purely on my uh canner's paintings and because the space is so big i'm excited to um paint two or three more paintings that are bigger in size uh and i also plan to do an installation um uh, uh, as well you know which would be my first since there's the space uh and i'm also working with one or two other artists to create videos as well as um a soundscape so all that would be very ex- exciting for me as an artist, uh, but I'm also excited to share this with, um, you know, everyone. And I hope that uh, people will come join. It's going to be for, uh, November 10th to December 1st. Um, it's only three weeks, uh, but, you know, I think uh, if people have time, you know, or just put it on your schedule to come, see my work, meet me and have a conversation, that'll be great. Yeah, meanwhile, people can look at your website, look at some samples of your work, and maybe join a mailing list or something like that. What does your website give your website? Yes, yes. My website is uh, just my name, www.cyanwong.com. That's S-I-Y-A-N-W-O-N-G.com. Excellent, excellent. So uh, also, Jessica, do you want to have any closing thoughts as we start? To- yeah, I mean, I think uh, attack the forest. I think you should have shirts. Just start a rally cry. Um, and if anyone wants to do some meditative writing with me or meditative screenwriting this Saturday, we have new workshops starting up. So check it out at meditativewriting.org. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, also the Truth to Power show is uh, uh, on Radio Free Brooklyn. It airs on Radio Free Brooklyn, as you know. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. 
whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations with listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebooklin.org slash donate. Um, this is the way you change the forest. You know, just with every little donation, every little help supporting community radio, uh, you know, you'll, you'll help continue help us to continue to stay on air. So all contributions are tax deductible. Uh, you can also go to radiofreebooklin.org slash shoot to power to sponsor this individual show if you're having a good experience. Um, also, um, we have uh, Laughter is the Best Medicine, so join us for Healing Headbands Project as the second annual Arts Heal fundraiser on May 7th at 6.30 at LIU's um, Tile Center and Laugh, Create, Heal. Uh, indulge in delicious food and drinks, take in incredible uh, performances by female rock bands, Antigone Rising and Moving On Dancers, and Better Laugh with Humor strategist uh, Paul Ossenkopf. Proceeds go to, towards supporting children in hospitals with serious illnesses. So get your tickets today at healingheadbands.com. Uh, finally, um, we uh, started, this, started the show out with um, a song, uh, The Other Side of the Wall by Assemblage 23. Uh, and we'll be ending the, um, the broadcast with uh, a happening by Hyperstory. Please remember to tune in. Oh, yeah. 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 Just one last thing, by yeah. the way. I, I love the name of the show, Truth to Power. Uh, I think truth can help understand power, and truth is the only effective tool to take down corrupt power. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So uh, remember to tune in every Monday at 8 a.m., either live or you can listen to the rebroadcast on uh, Thursdays at, uh, at uh, 9 a.m., and uh, go to rayforbrooklyn.org slash shoot to power for our archives. Thank you so much, guys. Maybe the way that today looks the same Happy and gray, I can taste yesterday day my mind goes and goes where it goes